0: Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez packham Let's get on with the show. Okay, bit of a landmark show today. I'm very excited about it. So, before we get going, I want to say some really big thank yous. Firstly, to those of you who have left listener reviews on iTunes over the years. And particularly, thank you to the latest three reviews, which were from... Pontus Aquila, 5 star, just superb, that's Peter in Brisbane, Australia. Wending Machine Repair Girl, 5 star, super interesting, from Sweden. Indie Perfume, 5 star, excellent podcast, fascinating new information and insights on a topic I thought I knew well, the politics, culture and context given on all parts of society, also enrich reading the great novels of the 19th century. Great research and empathy for each subject. Really appreciate receiving those reviews. Thank you. And also, yes, I think it is interesting to start rereading some of the classic novels, perhaps in light of the things we've all learnt as we've taken this journey so far. Also. A huge thank you to all new patrons out there. Your support really makes the show possible. Including a thank you to new patron, respectable governess Roberto. And lovable chimney sweep, Robin Finch. But above all, a big thank you to all of you for listening over the long journey to today's episode. We've covered a lot, but now is the time. Victoria is about. Become Queen Victoria. We are about to firmly enter the Victorian era. It was her age, and she would be the most famous woman on earth. We all have a crisis in our lives, usually more than one. As we've seen so far, Victoria had already had a very tough life by the time she was a teenager. Her gilded cage was dangerous. She wasn't just a little rich girl, moaning that she wanted to be free, to do what she wanted. She was the pawn of her mother, the Duchess of Kent, and her ruthless advisor, Sir John Conroy. They wanted Victoria to be their puppet. They were certain she was going to be queen, and they wanted to pull her strings. There is the interesting question which is when Victoria herself found out she was the heir. According to popular myth, as related by Baroness Louise Leysen, her governess, the two of them were sitting down on the 11th of March 1830, looking at history books. Victoria came across a map of the lineage of kings and queens of England. In Howlett's Tables of Kings and Queens of England, she quickly realised she was now Third in line for the throne. According to Lazen, Victoria burst into tears, saying, I am nearer the throne than I thought. Lazen, when retelling this account 30 years later, seems to have airbrushed away the tears and states Victoria said, I will be good. I'm not sure about that second version. On the one hand it is told a long time after the event Victoria is presented as unemotional and that phrase sounds a little unlikely for someone told they're going to be queen one day whereas the first version of a crying ten year old seems much more likely but whichever version you believe the actual words sound very much like things Victoria would say the phrasing is very her And you can almost hear her underlining bits of it and using italics even as she speaks. Seriously, when you think about Victoria talking, keep her diaries in mind. Because they show how she spoke to a degree. Many historians dismiss Lazen's story and think the actual event was probably quite mundane. However it happened, it is a bit surprising that her mother, the Duchess of Kent, didn't have the talk herself and give her the emotional support and understanding needed to go with such a life-changing revelation. The thing being asked of Victoria would be difficult for anyone. Victoria was feeling the isolation of the Kensington system. Her mother took on tours of the country, but they were for political benefits. They aimed to present the Duchess of Kent as the regent and future ruler. Ironically, the Duchess gave Victoria her first diary to record the trips. During one of her mother's tours, she visited Wales in August 1832 and was shocked by her first encounter with the Industrial Revolution that was upending her future kingdom. She said, The men, women, children, country, And houses all black. The grass is quite blasted and black. The country is very desolate. Engines flaming, coals in abundance. Everywhere, smoking and burning coal heaps, intermingled with wretched huts and carts and little ragged children. Victoria adopted her first dog, the beloved King Charles Spaniel, called Dash. She doted on him, trained him, washed him and walked him. She had her collection of dolls, her diaries, her education and developed a love of opera. She had Lazen and Uncle Leopold and the example of Queen Elizabeth I to look up to. She was growing up. She was admired by visitors as having a graceful, pleasing manner. She had excellent posture. Her mother had forced her to have a spiky holly, sprig under her chin, so that she learnt to look straight ahead and not drop her head to the floor. Is now the time for another Disney princess stepmother comparison? Anyway, Mother Dearest was enjoying the high life. She spent on dresses, borrowed money, had parties, employed fine chefs and singers, Conroy helped make the financial situation worse, by skimming everything he could off the accounts. I'm mentioning this, so you remember that not only was he, an awful and corrupt bully, but the Duchess of Kent, was just as bad in her own way. She enabled him, gave him access to Victoria. She could have broken him, and his career, with a mere word. She might not have been an abusive mother, and in later life, Victoria didn't consider her so, but she didn't help much. She expected Victoria to learn duty and discipline, though, as she loathed women being unoccupied. It would become a characteristic of the Victorian age. The Victorians would come to loathe idleness, and they considered hard work and industriousness a virtue. I suspect if some of them travelled to our own time, They'd consider us soft and lazy. But Victoria was now going to have to endure one of the hardest periods in her life, rivaling the immense depression she suffered when Albert died. She was nearly an adult. She turned 14, and if King William IV lived for a mere four years, then the Duchess and Conroy risked losing their prize, they would now step up their campaign for power by making vicious attacks on victoria's sanity it would have been a little consolation to her that the wider country was also engaged in a struggle for the future between a reformed and more liberal version of politics or a return to the most rigid aristocratic past she would be tested and have to see whether she really had iron in her soul we've learnt a lot about the young Alexandrina Victoria we've seen her move from the precarious early years to being an educated young woman one who knew she was going to be queen along the way we've seen her mother and Sir John Conroy scheme at becoming regents by the time she was 15 though it was clear Victoria might not need a regent the king William IV seemed determined to hang on till Victoria was old enough to be queen. He wanted to be sure that the Duchess of Kent was not allowed to be regent, and he would force himself to live long enough to get Victoria onto the throne as an 18-year-old adult, and thought the woman he despised. How had things got to this stage? Why was the Duchess of Kent... So hated by the easy-going sailor king. Initial relations between the Duchess of Kent and King William had got off to a bumpy start. The king was utterly unlike his dead brother George IV. He wanted a cheap, low-key coronation for a start. Even his wife, Queen Adelaide, had to make her own crown to save money and reduce the level of pomp. The ceremony only cost £30,000 compared to the eye-watering £240,000 George IV had gone through, William invited Victoria and the Duchess of Kent and gave Victoria a place of honour. In the procession just behind his brothers, the Duchess was enraged. She wouldn't allow Victoria to be presented except directly behind the king so she refused to attend. She said Victoria was too weak to cope with the ceremony. Well, that's interesting. Since Victoria was recorded in full health at the time, it was therefore a direct lie. It played into the Duchess's theme of Victoria being weak, or childlike, or simple, and needing a regent, and it was also an almighty slap to the new king's face. The press and the Tories were shocked Not that William made life easy for people He wasn't really interested in art or fine buildings And he snored his way through the opera Grand dinners were out And boozy sessions with his old navy buddies were in If he didn't like someone or something He told them, bluntly and loudly He drove some of the aristocracy crazy But it's not as if the aristocracy themselves couldn't be pretty coarse. One officer observed that he never heard the Duke of Wellington speak without swearing. Most common people rather liked this plain, blunt, loud old navy man on the throne. But his popularity took a significant hit when he initially refused to support reform. His reluctant role... In getting the Great Reform Act of 1832 passed into law helped a little but he had dragged his feet so much on it that he squandered the opportunity to cast himself as a bluff reformist king. Being associated with a government that passed the oppressive poor law didn't exactly help. Worse still was that he didn't intervene to help the Toll Puddle martyrs in 1834. All they had done was to try to set up a trade union for impoverished labourers in a small village in Dorset. They were rewarded with being clapped in irons and sentenced to seven years' transportation. He was further annoyed with the Duchess parading Victoria around the country on tours designed to boost Victoria's popularity with the public. It wasn't Victoria being popular that bothered him, more... That the Duchess was doing it to associate herself with Victoria's power and undermine him, he was as he said, even more quote, disgusted at the Duchess of Kent's progresses with her daughter through the kingdom with her sailings at the Isle of Wight and her continual popping in the shape of gun salutes to her Royal Highness end quote, to a naval officer. Official gun salutes were an extremely serious business. They were to be done correctly and to the right people at exactly the right time. The Duchess was claiming royal salutes from naval vessels, as if she were the regent already. The King had forced the Duchess to accept the Duchess of Northumberland as the second governess to Victoria. Attempts by Conroy and the Duchess of Kent... Yet the new governess on side were fruitless. She was appointed by the king and loyal to him first, then Victoria. The Duchess of Kent had succeeded in establishing her own royal court with Victoria at its heart. But it had put them in direct conflict with the king's own court. As Victoria turned 15, time seemed to be running out for the Duchess of Kent and Conroy. Her education was nearly over. They decided to take more drastic measures. They would try to persuade people that Victoria needed a regent, even as an adult. They embarked on a vicious campaign. They would try and pass her off as weak, childish, and perhaps not completely sane, like her grandfather, George Third, She was presented in white gowns, which were the symbol of childhood, She was bullied openly by the Duchess of Kent, Anne Conroy, who called her ugly and penny-pinching. Can you imagine the psychological damage that can do to a teenage girl? To know her mother was a vicious, power-hungry bully who was hell-bent on undermining her. They tried to force Victoria to appoint Conroy as her personal advisor or to agree to a regency till she was 21 but Victoria refused causing them to explode in fury when Victoria fell ill they ignored her complaints and sometimes refused medical help accusing her of malingering Baron Stockmar who acted for Uncle Leopold had suggested to the Duchess of Kent that she and Conroy should ease up on Victoria maybe let her appoint her own ladies-in-waiting and Treat her as a grown-up friend and daughter. The advice was ignored. Instead, they appointed Lady Flora Hastings to spy on Victoria and drive a wedge between her and Lazen. Victoria almost immediately loathed her, especially as Lady Flora quickly fell under the seemingly hypnotic charms of Conroy. I've said before, I don't know what it was about him that made him so irresistible. I'm not the only one who was so surprised. Lord Melbourne, the future dear Lord M, said, What an amazing scape of a man he must have been to have kept three ladies at once in good humour. I've always wondered why so many awful people in history seem to have been so loved and admired. Past a lot of fairly decent ones are just ignored or overlooked. The psychology of charisma is a fascinating study. Time still passed. The king still lived and Victoria grew closer to adulthood and her 18th birthday. In 1835 she turned 16. The Duchess of Kent had a go at getting rid of the Duchess of Northumberland by cutting her out of the loop over Victoria's confirmation but the king thwarted the attempt in a petty response the Duchess of Kent refused the king's invitation to a celebratory dinner followed by an official visit to Greenwich Hospital the king went ballistic and it was pretty much open war from this point Victoria went through her confirmation ceremony on the 30th of July 1835 a big event for the Anglican Church, but also an important symbol of her approaching adulthood. It also marked her as readying herself for becoming governor of the Church of England. Conroy arrived uninvited, only to have the king turn on him furiously and kick him out. The Duchess of Kent was livid, and Victoria was reduced to tears by the currents of anger at what was supposed to be a sacred ceremony for her, in the eyes of God and the church. Shortly after the ceremony, the Duchess of Kent wrote to Victoria to explain how much she had sacrificed for her daughter, and to tell Victoria that it was time to fire Lazen. The sheer chutzpah of that is pretty incredible. It reminds me of one of those awful TV oil baron millionaire mothers from the old show Dallas telling everyone how hard life had been for her Victoria though refused Lazen stayed an uneasy jockeying for power was beginning as Victoria started to push for her independence that wasn't just political or to spite her mother she was a teenager, and therefore always going to push boundaries as she went through the roller coaster of adolescence. But on top of that, the fact that Lazen was the adored mother figure, and sole shield against Conroy, and you can see why Victoria would not give her up. Also, one of Victoria's main character traits had been strongly developed by the Duchess of Kent, and that trait was an ego. Victoria had been told she was important. Everyone was so deferential to her. She lived in palaces, had servants, and was educated by aristocrats and bishops. This ego blended neatly with her already strong willpower. Throughout her life, clever people learnt that she was open-minded and intelligent, so long as requests and advice were presented in a flattering way. If she was made to feel the most important person in the room, she would carefully listen and consider the arguments being made to her. Prime Minister Disraeli and Lord Melbourne were really good at this, but Conroy and the Duchess of Kent had taken the opposite approach, trying to bully and belittle her. The unhappy group went on another tour around the country, which further infuriated king william the fourth and caused further arguing still it was a successful tour victoria even got to meet her idol the opera singer julia Grisset. this was good as victoria didn't like tours she felt they made her ill and she was painfully aware she was the object of political scheming she struggled with exhaustion at the cracking pace Conroy had organised. She complained she'd barely arrived at one destination before she was expected to change for dinner, then cope with a grand banquet and ball, before going through it all again the next day. And don't forget that getting changed for dinner wasn't anything like as easy as today. She couldn't slip out of her jeans, have a shower, put on some makeup, some tights and a little black dress and call it done, it meant hours of preparation, changing the complex layer of clothes worn by Victorians, both male and female. Then, during the laborious process of having her hair and makeup done, perfection with the bare minimum expected. She was playing the game of thrones, where failure could see her judged unfit to rule, and displaced by Conroy and her mother. She had to be perfect enough to deflect her mother and Conroy and to ensure the guests viewed her as a fit future queen. The exhaustion hit her hard. At one ball she went to bed after the first dance. At another one she had to be stopped from falling asleep during dinner. One highlight was that when they got to Ramsgate she met Uncle Leopold, King of Belgium. She was thrilled. She loved his new wife, who introduced her to the latest French fashions. Leopold was sympathetic, but couldn't rescue Victoria from Conroy and the Duchess. We don't know what advice he gave her, but it seems to have been to stand firm against Conroy. Soon after, Victoria fell ill, with excruciating lower back pain and exhaustion. The Duchess of Kent, accused Victoria of constantly faking such illnesses. Leopold bluntly forced the Duchess of Kent to call for Dr Clark. The doctor felt Victoria really was ill. He advised she needed more exercise and less stress. He was sufficiently concerned to actually lecture Conroy about his poor treatment of Victoria. The Duchess of Kent was not prepared to listen to any of that. When Leopold and the doctor departed, it was back to the Kensington system for Victoria. She soon fell ill again with fever and asked for the doctor. He was grudgingly summoned. He declared her symptoms weren't serious and he would do a follow-up visit in a couple of days just to make sure she was recovering. The Duchess laid into Victoria as soon as the doctor had left accusing her of faking it, and Lazen of indulging Victoria's whims too much. Victoria wasn't faking anything, though, and soon was unable to eat. Lazen begged the Duchess to summon the doctor on Sunday, but the Duchess refused, saying, quote, How can you think I would do such a thing? What a noise it would make in town. End quote. Dr. Clark having heard nothing further, assumed his follow-up was unnecessary. Because, hey, you don't get to be a royal doctor by knowing anything about care pathways, or using your initiative, or even adhering to basic medical standards. Still, by Wednesday, Victoria had been unable to sleep, couldn't eat or drink, and was delirious. Conroy and the Duchess actually began to panic. A dead Victoria was no use to them. Better that people thought the air could be sick than to have a corpse on their hands. They were right to worry, since some modern historians have identified the illness as typhoid fever, which could be extremely lethal for the Victorians. Victoria's life hung in the balance. Naturally, Conroy and the Duchess of Kent decided this was an opportunity. As Victoria lay helpless in bed, sweating and sick. They tried to force her to sign a document appointing Conroy as her private secretary. She was too weak to hold a pen, so they tried to force it into her hand. Victoria refused to sign. If they succeeded, Conroy would have had total power over Victoria. She would have given him power over who spoke to her, what documents or letters she received, and complete control over her money. They could have locked her in a closet for years, and declared her too ill or deranged to actually rule in practice. That regency the Duchess would have got if the King died, whilst Victoria was under 18, could quickly have turned into a lifetime one of isolation and imprisonment for poor Victoria. All of it came down to pressure on one sick, weak and isolated child. All of the years of bullying, of keeping her controlled and isolated, of undermining her confidence, mocking her appearance, questioning her sanity, came down on her in this one moment. You don't have to have armies or fortunes to have power. Sometimes. It is just about controlling the right person at the right time. But Victoria wouldn't break. Lazen stayed with her, giving her what support she could. Victoria's recovery would take a long time. She lost her hair and shed weight. She was already tiny to begin with, so a concerned Dr Clark prescribed a new routine of exercise, including weightlifting, long walks, and the luxury of a hot bath every four or five days. He also advised that Victoria needed to live in a well-ventilated house that was clean and disease-free. Duchess of Kent was delighted. She had previously been refused use of the royal apartments at Kensington, but now she clearly had to have them for the good of her daughter's health. So she had them remodelled without telling the king Anne moved into what used to be the king's state bedroom. Conroy seemed pleased with the areas he'd purloined, and Victoria didn't know about them basically stealing the king's various apartments. Anne was pretty thrilled to move. She was terribly isolated though, just with her doll's collection, her beloved dog Dash, the King Charles Cavalier Spaniel, which she felt were her only real friends. Anymore. Aside from Lazen, but time was ticking by. She would not be the isolated child for much longer. Soon, the Duchess of Kent would push the king too far. The explosion came at a royal dinner. It is a famous scene to Victoria lovers. It appears in most movies or TV series. The chain of events started when the king invited the Duchess and Victoria come and stay at Windsor to celebrate the Queen's birthday on the 13th of August, 1836 and his own on the 21st of August This was his attempt to get closer to Victoria whom he still liked and regarded as his ideal heir The Duchess of Kent said she'd not come to Windsor for the Queen's birthday as she wanted to celebrate her own birthday at Claremont on the 17th of August but would be ready to pop up for the 20th. This was a pretty big snub, and the king was annoyed. He let it go, and allowed the Duchess to make her way to Windsor in her own time. While she was travelling, he decided to drop into Kensington Palace to check up on his royal apartments. He was infuriated when he found out the Duchess and Conroy had taken them over despite his express command and they'd even had the gall to redecorate them he returned to Windsor and met Victoria at a small dinner on the 20th the next day was his birthday and hundreds of guests were gathered for a banquet the king ate and drank plenty despite his declining health and rose to make his after dinner speech it was going to be a cracker and really well remembered, he started by praising Victoria, and saying he was determined to live long enough, for Victoria to become Queen, without the Duchess of Kent being made regent. Then, in the best spirits, of expressing his inner feelings, and being in touch with his core values, he let rip. I should then have the satisfaction, of leaving the Royal Authority, the personal exercise of that young lady he pointed at Victoria the heirs presumptive of the crown and not in the hands of a person near me who is surrounded by evil advisers, and is who herself incompetent to act with propriety in the station in which she would be placed I have no hesitation in saying that I have been grossly and continually insulted by that person but I am determined to endure no longer a course of behaviour so disrespectful to me. Among many other things, I have particularly to complain of the manner in which that young lady has been kept away from my court. She has been repeatedly kept away from my drawing-rooms, at which she ought always to have been present, but I am now fully resolved this shall not happen again. I would have her know that I am king, and that I am determined to make my authority respected, and for the future I shall insist and command that the princess do upon all occasions appear at my court, as it is her duty to do. End quote. Everyone knew that that person was the Duchess of Kent, and she was mortified. What always surprises me is that people always seem to call out the king for drunkenly yelling at the Duchess of Kent, and ignore the substance of what he was saying, which was bang on the money. In May 1837, the King made his final moves against the Duchess of Kent and Conroy. He sent the Lord Chamberlain, Lord Conningham, to Victoria, with a letter, saying the King would ask Parliament to grant her a formal annual allowance of £30,000. The moment... She turned 18. At this point, that was only six days away. That's a staggering sum, and would have given her an enormous amount of independence. Conroy tried to intercept the letter. Conningham was adamant it would go straight to Victoria. Thinking fast, Conroy got the Duchess of Kent to write to the king in Victoria's name to reject the offer. Victoria was made to copy the letter dictated by her mother and sign it. Despite its mentions of her youth, inexperience and total reliance on her mother, the King received it and immediately knew it was the Duchess's words, even if the handwriting was Victoria's. The Duchess of Kent also complained to the Prime Minister Lord Melbourne that he was badly advising the King. Lord M keen to avoid the potential scandal of royal feuding, weakly got the idea dropped. He did make a small counter-offer. There was a £4,000 allowance for Victoria and 10000 for the Duchess, which the Duchess refused without even asking Victoria. The King's health was declining fast, but not fast enough for Conroy and the Duchess of Kent. On the 24th of May, 1837, Victoria turned 18. She was now an adult. The king threw a state banquet for her and there were huge celebrations. The only person who looked truly miserable was the Duchess of Kent. People noticed she looked anxious and harassed. Interestingly, Victoria's diaries mentioned joy on the occasion and giving a brooch to governess Baroness Lazen but pointedly her mother is not mentioned Conroy and the Duchess of Kent intensified their campaign they refused to let Victoria appoint her own staff or advisers. they still kept her away from the King, Lord Melbourne or anyone else who might support her they approached former Prime Minister Lord Liverpool for help Conroy insinuated that Victoria was mentally feeble and developmentally challenged, so needed a strong personal secretary and treasurer like him. Conroy overplayed his hand, though, and declared Victoria's lady-in-waiting should be dismissed and replaced with his own daughters. Lord Liverpool remembered his own daughter had been dismissed by Conroy from the same position, For getting too friendly with Baroness Lazen, he smelt a rat and insisted on a private interview with Victoria. Whatever was said, Victoria convinced him and he advised her to stay strong and continue as she was. He offered Conroy some minor offices to distract him, but said it wasn't appropriate for Victoria to have a formal personal secretary appointed. Conroy was reaching the end of his tether. He snarled at the Duchess of Kent If Princess Victoria will not listen to reason, she must be coerced. It was too late, though. The king struggled on into June. He wanted to see one last Waterloo anniversary celebration banquet. On the twentieth of june, eighteen thirty seven, two twenty in the morning, the King died. Lord Conningham and the Archbishop of Canterbury were sent to Kensington Palace to see Victoria, to tell her she was Queen. They arrived at 0500, and the gates were locked. The Duchess of Kent tried to put them off, but they insisted. At 0600, Victoria was awoken, and given the news, while still in her nightwear, the King was dead. Long live the Queen. I can only imagine the horror being felt by Conroy and the Duchess at this moment. I hope it was really awful for them. Victoria's first act as Queen was to command her bed be moved from her mother's room. She wrote to Uncle Leopold too. Then she summoned Lord Melbourne. He arrived and they had a private interview. He was charm personified. She was perfectly happy to keep him and his administration in place in government. She was adamant that the only person who did have to go was Conroy. Lord M smiled. A royal scandal, once the king was alive, was what had worried him. But now the king was dead, what did anyone care about some ex-captain and former aide to a deceased duke? Conroy had forgotten the critical importance having powerful patrons, he was about to be dumped. The Privy Council was summoned. Speculation was rampant. What was the young queen like? Was the kingdom and the empire to be ruled by an 18-year-old girl who wasn't even five foot tall? What if Conroy and the Duchess were right? What if she was too immature or mentally feeble or mad? like her grandfather, but Victoria was now ready to step from the shadows. The years of abuse under the Kensington system had taught her to hide her true feelings, to be determined, to be tough and to be clever. She was inexperienced, but she was no fool. Her opening speeches soon mesmerised the room. She combined grace and steel in her voice. She affirmed her right to rule, but also promised to uphold the rights of Parliament and the people, and look to their welfare. Attendees found her presence seemed to fill the room, despite her tiny size. In some ways, this was just clever theatre by Victoria. In other ways, just her personality. She was behaving in a graceful and regal way. A marked contrast to the often rude behaviour of the previous Hanoverian kings, it was probably a refreshing change to have a monarch who at least appeared to be trying to uphold the dignity of the office. Conroy and the Duchess of Kent were pointedly not allowed near the Queen, despite their efforts, The most the Duchess got was a frigid good night. Victoria agreed with her advisers there shouldn't be a public showdown, but the Duchess was, to quote the Godfather, out of the family business. Conroy knew his chance was gone. He decided to get what he could. He pressed for a pension of 3000 a year, an entry into the peerage to compensate him. He felt for all the opportunities for his own career that he passed up in order to serve his nation by helping bring up the Queen. After all, he argued, he'd passed up chances of gainful employment and had no chance to make money for himself. That's a level of chutzpah that makes your jaw drop. When you consider he was skimming the equivalent of millions off the various royal accounts he administered, Victoria was horrified. She'd hoped the £3,000 would be enough to get rid of him and have him leave court. The idea of him gaining access to the power of sitting in the House of Lords was repulsive to her. Eventually, after months of wrangling, Conroy was made a baronet, so he got title and a pension, but not the peerage. As I've said before in a previous episode, he would remain bitter to the end. This is a very different sort of revenge than perhaps we are used to in history podcasts. If this was the history of Rome or the history of Byzantium you would know that when the queen comes to the throne and decides to get even well heads would be up on spikes and people would accidentally stab themselves to death whilst combing their hair. But this was the 19th century and Victoria was a constitutional monarch. She wasn't particularly bloodthirsty quite the reverse. There was Much for her to learn and connections to make. She wouldn't have the formal coronation ceremony till a year later, on the 28th of June, 1838. She enjoyed it, despite many key people screwing up the ceremony, nearly getting her finger broken by a blundering archbishop, shoving a ring on the wrong finger, and an elderly lord falling down the stairs. She wrote in her diary, quote, it was a fine day, and the crowds of people exceeded what I have ever seen, being even much greater than when I went to the city. There were millions of my loyal subjects, assembled in every spot to witness the procession. Their good humour and excessive loyalty was beyond anything. I really cannot say how proud I felt to be the queen of such a nation. End quote. For many of her subjects, who couldn't attend, it was still a time of celebration. Even for the poorest, it was possible to mark the occasion. The guardians at Gateshead, for instance, fed their workhouse inmates roast beef and plum pudding on Coronation Day. An unheard of treat. I'll probably do a mini-sode at some point, focusing just on the Coronation, as it is really interesting, it's probably a bit much for today. Now, though, as we draw to the close of the episode, we'll leave Victoria as Queen. Not just Queen of England, but Queen of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. Although the title wouldn't come until years later, she was also an Empress. She would rule one of the largest empires the world had ever seen. Her words would be heard from the frozen northern dominion of Canada to the blistering heat of the colonies in Australia from the mountains of India to the jungles of Africa Her traders would open markets across the world Her people would spread out more than ever before Her navy would create the Pax Britannica and for a short time rule the seas whether welcome or at gunpoint the British were coming. With them would come new laws, new customs, new science, and new technologies. The world was about to be rot like nothing it had seen before. Join me in the next episode for the first of the earthquakes.